what is going on, everybody? Happy Monday. My name is Moore Milo. And I'm Ross Hainarelli. And this is the 52 Podcast. 52 books, 52 weeks, making every single week count. Thank you all for joining us yet again for episode 63. We got a great book this week for all of you entrepreneurs out there. Um, for those of you that are new, thank you for joining us. What we do here is we read a book a week and bring you guys the keynotes. For those of you who have joined us before, thank you so much for making your way back for your little dose of knowledge. Um, so guys, let's just hop straight into it. Uh, we had our Quibi little piece of news last week. We just wanted to update you guys on that, but we've noticed that um, keeping it short and sweet is better for everybody just because that way you get all the knowledge. You go home, you go find your news somewhere else. So this week we have read a book called Company of One by Paul Jarvis, um, and it was good. I thought it was really good. It was about eight hours long on, on audiobook. For those of you that don't know, we read audiobooks. just works out better for us, gives us an opportunity to do more in our week. Um, and yeah, I just want to jump right into it. This book is all about entrepreneurship. It's all about creating a life that is going to align with your vision. It allows you to kind of be independent and do your own thing. It also has some really counterintuitive uh, measures and ideologies in it that are completely against the grain when it comes to business and your an overall kind of ideology around business and organizational structure. So really cool stuff. Uh, just off the top of, you know, just to kind of get a, our basic opinion on the book, um, I thought it was great. I thought it was worth every ounce of the, of the eight hours that I listened to. Um, I think it was really a great opportunity to learn how to be an entrepreneur from someone who has created um, some really great things. And Ross, what do you think? Just basic, like off the top, overall thought. Honestly, this book felt kind of the original type of books that we started the 52 on, which are more business, entrepreneur, as far or as far as that would go. Normally, like I said, now we've been diversifying into a few different things as well. But what I've noticed is this book really kind of felt back to the core. You know what I mean? More, this really felt like the ones that we really started on. Would you agree? Totally, 100%. Um, but I definitely enjoyed it. I mean, like I said, more talked on it. We, we read these as audiobooks because, you know, it is a lot of books in, in a year. It's hard to always go a book a week. Um, so sometimes it comes down to, you know, more and us, more and I reading these books and finishing them off, you know, a few hours before we actually record. Um, this one I got done a few days before. I actually knocked this book out in about two days. Uh, really enjoyed it. You know, really, there's a lot of information here that I think is easy to understand from our perspective because we did have a startup. So we're able to kind of look back on that experience and, and take things from this book. Um, and like I said, as we dive into this, we'll talk about the different lessons kind of learned in this book. But overall, I would say it was definitely very strong. One of the, the better books I said we've had in the, the last month or so. But um, yeah, I would totally agree. Yeah, totally agree. It, so yeah, let's, try, let's let's hop into it. Um, super counterintuitive book. You know, listen, when you go into business and you start talking about businesses and who's who's making things work, it's all about how much money they're making, how big the company is, how many employees they have, how much revenue, how much venture capital money. Like that's how most of us look to kind of measure a business, right? Like how much money are they making? How much? How many sales are they creating? You know, how much? You know, how many employees do they have on the books? All, the, all those different things. And this book was really quite the opposite. This book was just a conversation about how to be independent in 2020, uh, 2020 now about to be 2021, and 
it was really interesting. I mean, it was just it, it was uh, it was kind of measuring your business with different um, analytics. You know, it wasn't it wasn't the average. It wasn't it, it's not a it's not a book of like okay, let's look at Wall Street and see how they're doing things and how they rank businesses. It's it's a concept of like hey, you don't need cap uh, venture capitalist money. You don't need a million employees. You don't need to spend hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars on advertising. Stick to what you know. Keep it simple, stupid, um, which I liked a lot. I thought it was really cool. I thought it was cool to hear a business person that has written a couple books and has a seven-figure business and you know all these things, and to hear him come from a place of, yeah, like I do it on my own. I have a team, but for the most part, like I balance my life with my work. It's not all about hustle, hustle, hustle all day. It's it's about create a scenario that you win. And I think that there's so much like we've lost that. Like as like Ross said, we we built a tech startup, you know, and the technology community is all about when can I get my first venture capitalist dollar? You know, when can I start creating massive revenues? When can I hire on the first hundred employees? Um, whereas this book is like, no, stay small. Live your life as a small business. Be a company of one. Have some, you know, auxiliary support, but you don't need all these things. Um, you know, and it's just it was it was really refreshing actually. I I thought it was it was kind of crazy to hear someone who is a successful business person really talk about the counterintuitive nature of being a small business owner and just because your business is small doesn't mean that you failed or you haven't made it to the next level like you can choose to stay as a small business and have freedom and not have to live based off of, you know, your venture capitalist money and what they want and, and have to balance the, you know, well, how can we get the numbers? How can we get the employees? How can we look like this big, massive, huge company? And it was just cool. Like, I, I don't know. What other counterintuitive things did you hear about here in the book? Because there's a lot of stuff. And, and I, I, like, I wrote down five big notes here, and I kind of just want to go one by one. But, you know, Ross, in regards to, like, what other counter counterintuitive ideologies around business, like, what else did you hear that I didn't mention? You know, I think the big one would be, and I have a few uh, others, but specifically on that question, I would say growth. You know, when you're in a startup, the first thing you talk about, and we've, we've actually heard this in other books as well, so everyone's always on the same mindset, is we are going to change the world. It's going to be revolutionary. It is going to disrupt everything, right? And we always put growth at the highest. You know, what is our user base? How fast are our users growing? How are our projections doing against what we're actually bringing in? And, you know, I think the, the title is honestly the best part of the book in a way, being called Company of One. And that doesn't mean you're by yourself, but it puts into perspective the fact that you can be one person, you can work to be able to achieve these huge goals, but it's okay to set more short-term, more realistic goals and don't make growth the number one. You know, don't push so hard, like you said, spending thousands of dollars on marketing um, when you're actually not really set up to scale. You know, instead of spending that money on marketing, you might be better off, you know, putting that back into the product or, or optimizing a few different things. So the big one to me was kind of growth, more being realistic and not trying to make growth the the number one um, facet that you're looking to kind of change. The other thing for me that, you know, I thought was really big was understanding your profit limits. You know, to go along with growth, we are all used to the the Silicon Valley startup model, which is, 
you know, grow fast, you know, make money later, essentially. And, and our company, Pedal, is the same thing. But there is something to be said to being able to make just additional revenue or an initial profit and understanding more so who your additional audience is and then slowly scaling from that. Because what you're doing when you're slowly scaling is you're actually taking the time to learn and get the feedback from your customers to find out what does work and what doesn't. If you try to grow too quickly, you're going to be assuming what they want, what's going to make it better. You're going to spend a lot of money in R&D and moving money around to different parts of your product that actually isn't going to help you. And they talk about this in the book as well, which is pretty much don't try to fix the problem by adding additional features. And this is something that we actually did when we had different issues. Um, our first thought was, hey, we've had this idea on the back burner. Maybe it's time that we activate it. And this book is pretty much saying no. Like, if you're having an issue, try to dig down into the problem of that instead of trying to put a Band-Aid on and add a new feature or try to do something that's going to be diversifying your audience. Try to stay and stay focused on that niche audience that you have and really learn from them. You know, stay on that very, very specific audience and then you're going to be able to learn a lot more. So, a few different things that really kind of played together. But that was one yeah, of my big great. initial takeaways. You know what I mean? That's great. Yeah, totally. And and I think to, to piggyback off of that, um, it, there was a really great quote from the book that I remember that was something along the lines of, we mistake easy for simple, right? It's really, really um, sexy to make something overly easy. And what we end up doing by taking a, a, a problem and a solution that we've created for that problem and making it really, really easy is we overcomplexify the whole thing. We add new, like add new, um, add new software. We put in new solutions. We add new features. We add new this. We add new that. We add new this. We add new that. And the idea is to make it easier. But really, at the end of the day, simple stupid is the winner, right? So like, instead of going and creating a bunch of new features to try to solve a problem. Why not just take what the, the solution that you currently have and make it viable, make it work, right? And, and, and that kind of goes also in the perfect segue for me here because one of my notes on my piece of paper here is better over bigger, right? Like he makes it such a great point of like saying just because something is bigger, just because something is more complex, just because something has more features, just because you have more employees, just because you're making more money, just because you have more revenue does not mean it's better. It means it's bigger. And that adds complexity and, and you lose sight of what you really came in to start, uh, came in to do. You know, like thinking back to, to, for example, our pedal days, right? We added a million features to try to make everything work. And our, uh, to, to, to Enrique's point, our, our programmer, he's like, dude, guys, we, we need a basic, basic product here. And, and we just kept on wanting to add more and more and more and more, trying to make it easier on the customer, trying to make it more seamless, when really all we were doing was making it more complex, right? So it's like the idea of better over bigger, right? Provide a better service. Provide a better solution. Provide uh, a better product. Provide a better piece of software, Double down on the simple, not on the, the, the easy, right? Um, and those that look to, you know, have their problem solved by your solution, they're going to look for something simple to use to, to figure out their solution. At the end of the day, 
you know, people's uh, attention span is very limited. And you're going to lose someone real fast if you have a complex system that you've added a million features to. But if you keep it simple, you solve one problem instead of trying to solve all of them, you stay true to the course, you're going to have a better setup. Right? If you solve one problem and you worry about one problem and one uh, customer and one sale, as opposed to trying to go and, and, and you know, fish with the net, you're going to end up creating a, a solution for a lot of people just by focusing on that one problem. So that was really interesting to me. Um, so be, better over bigger. Yeah, I think that would be a phenomenal point. And, you know, there were so many little things in this book, but I, I honestly, I really liked it. I thought that it was, it was very easy to read, and it does feel very catered to that entrepreneur that it feel, has that, like, me-against-the-world feeling because, you know... Like, my favorite book, as you know, is The Lean Startup. That's my Bible. But that also has a little bit of a feeling like you need extra help, which is, is true. Um, I don't think company of one honestly means one person, and they talk about that in the book. But I think there is something to understand and to appreciate from being able to understand more so, you know, what your business is all about. You know, really understanding that... This can all be done. Like we've talked about when uh, we had Pedal, I would always tell, you know, our group as well, is we're not reinventing the wheel of business. You know, we just need to learn how to do it. You know, nothing that we're doing from a, you know, business as far as, you know, organization or how we're conducting ourselves is any different than anything out there. You know, our mindset obviously is in a very positive place. But I think it's just important to understand that it takes a lot of resilience, especially in a young company, you know, you need to understand that you have to be down to earth. You have to accept the reality of things and don't become a prey to these like wishful thinkings, you know, and the biggest thing I think more can attest to this is be adaptive. We were always priding ourselves on, you know, being able to pivot and be very adaptive to whatever's going to happen. And I think that's incredibly strong, you know, with that, you're able to get a little bit more speed because you're able to shift quicker and that only happens if, like you said more, if you keep it simple, stupid, you know? So it's under it's important to understand that. Uh, the other thing you made me think of when you talked about the, the programmers, I want to thank Enrique and uh, Jin Yang. They killed it, and they were both completely right because they would tell us, yo, stop adding features. Like, you guys are going to go overboard. And while I do think they were all phenomenal features... Um, they definitely could have been rolled out in a slower and more efficient way. But he did talk about freelancers in this book, which is kind of where it takes me to. Now, Jin Yang was a uh, freelancer, found him on Fiverr. We interviewed uh, five to six different people. Um, he was located out in Seattle, so was working remotely. And, you know, him and his team got so much done for us. It was absolutely amazing. And then Enrique was part of the company. Uh, Enrique came in later when we started building out the next version. And it is important to understand the difference between a freelancer and someone in-house. So Enrique, because he was in-house, obviously he had more say and he got a lot more done. Um, but there are certain things that it does make more sense to not give up equity or bring someone into your company early if you have the funds or the ability to do it in a freelance style. So a lot of examples would be if you're starting a clothing company. You know, you can get freelance designers. You can get 
um, a freelance company that's going to help you with shipping if you don't want to do it all in-house versus bringing things in-house. So it is important to understand when you need to go from, you know, a company of one single person to do I expand with an actual in-house employee or can this be done um, simply with a freelancing or a contractor. So for us and what I would say is if it is a simple task, get a freelancer. If it is something that is super important, like for us, building out the entire full production product, and that took someone that we needed in-house, where Jin Yang was there for the um, MVP, the minimal viable product, just to see if it can work, if it can operate, if people will like it. So I think that's important to note, is, is one way that, you know, when you have a freelancer, it really is time is money. You know, they, they only make money when they work. Whereas if you bring someone in-house, if they're not doing much that day or that week because they don't have anything to really do, maybe there's no update the product needs to do, if more goes out and he signs a big deal, you know, our company is now valued more, which now has made Jin Yang, or not Jin Yang, Enrique, some more money. So everyone, you have to understand the differences, but um, like I said, I would definitely go the fr freelance route for as long as you can until you're really ready and you have a product that is scalable, and then that's when you really look to um, bring in someone in-house that you trust, that operates well with your team, <coughs> checks all the boxes, and that's where you're going to be incredibly strong. So I know yeah, it's a little bit speaking, of a tangent, but yeah, that was that was really no, what came to good. mind. And actually, it's, it's a it's a beautiful thing. Um, speaking of freelancers, another really big thing here in this in the book that he really gets across is understand and build your own skill. You can't be a company of one if you can't pr provide a product or a personality that's bigger than what's available at the corporate level. Right, like there's so many people that want to just start companies and like be uh, a designer or be uh, a web uh, web developer or be you know a marketing person or whatever it may be. But at the end of the day, you know you still you have to hone in on your skill. You got to understand your skill all in to a point where you really understand what's going on, and then after you hone in on that skill, you can then go be a company of one. And a company of one is also going to require you to not only know your skill, but it's also going to require you to start looking into payroll and start looking into how to how to manage your accounting and how to do you know your invoicing and how to do all these different things outside of your realm. So it's really important also just to really hone in on what it is that you do and do well and how you can differentiate yourself, whether it's your personality or your services, in the marketplace. And I think that's one really massive step that a lot of... Uh, a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of people that want to go out and create businesses forget to do. Like I see this all the time. There's so many people that I hear that say, we're going to start an app or we're going to go build a marketing agency or we're going to go do this. Or we're, and mind you, like we are those people as well, right? And we, we you know, have had to kind of dial our, our skills in and we've gone back to the drawing board and you know, joined in with big companies that are going to allow us to hone our skills even more, right? So not not saying this is like we're better than you or we know more than you. We're just saying it is this is what we've learned. And it's really important to just understand your skill. And, you know, sometimes you got to build under somebody else and understand, you know, what it takes to run a company based on the things that you want to run your own company with. And once you do that, you really have an understanding of what it is that you provide to the market then you can go and take that into an entrepreneurial position and, and do it at a high level on your own, right? So build your skill. Understand what you do, what you bring to the marketplace, how you can do it. Um, you know, like we learned a lot on the pro down, the down the line of the process when we were building Pedal, but we also kind of had our own, 
you know, lane that we did really well in, right? Like we had, like I was a really great salesperson. Ross understands finance. Enrique was an expert level programmer. Dominic was a phenomenal design guy. Uh, you know, like we, we all had our own space and we all were, were extremely, uh, uh, of course, how could I forget Tom? Tom is a phenomenal branding guy, right? Like, so we all had our own kind of lane that we really understood and understood what we were doing in. And then we all came together and found a way to work together and learn new things outside of our realm of expertise to supplement within the company, right? So that's really important is understanding what your skill is, understanding how you do it and doing it masterfully so that you can go out and be the best version of your company of one as possible. Yeah, I agree. And talking with skills, like you said, Everyone had to learn new skills, too, which is very important. Like, you talked about all the accounting and stuff. Like, that was not fun. And then we also, like I said, when we brought Tom in, who, like you said, is amazing when it comes to branding. Um, we had all this, but, you know, I talked earlier about freelancing and, and bringing in that or someone in-house. We never had anyone to do programmatic for as far as advertising goes. So I spent, like, three months learning it. Moore had to learn a crap ton of stuff. Dom did, and everyone did. You have to be able to accept that what you know is not the most you'll ever know. You cannot be a know-it-all. A know-it-all can never learn anything new. And you have to continue to expand and grow. So you have a lot of different things. One thing I want to mention, though, before I forget, because we actually ran into this, and we were told this, and the book actually talked about it. Remember when we got a lawyer more? How oh, we yeah. were told? It, it said it as well in the book. Like, if you're getting a lawyer in the beginning, which is great... Uh, make sure they understand and be open with the size of company that you are. You know, this guy was, we, we let him know that we don't have much. We are an incredibly young startup. We have huge aspirations, but like, this is what it is. And I think that's incredibly important to do. Cause even with that, you know, we still had issues of like, we needed one line corrected and he wanted to charge us a few hundred dollars. And we were like, bro, like we told you this to be in the first contract. You didn't put it like, we're not paying for another revision. Money is so tight. So different issues popped up. We ended up obviously paying him because we need extra services. But I think that's very important that when you're working with a lawyer or any other company, I think it is important to try to disclose the actual size of your company because people do a lot of posturing. We did this as well um, to try to look larger than we, we were um, for the sake of getting a deal done. And it did work a lot of the time. Posturing isn't bad. But when you're talking about bringing somebody in on the inside, kind of like a lawyer is, I think it is more important to be transparent. You know, posturing is fine if you're trying to make a big sale um, and you have full confidence that you and your team can pull it off. But I think when you're looking at people that are either in-house in or really working for you, not making a sale, it is important to properly disclose the size of your company. So that's that was point. one of the, yeah, that's what popped up to me and I want to make sure we pass that on to the listeners. Totally. And so, so not really a great segue, but another point that I really wanted to bring up was... Um, well, actually, you know what? I'll do a different point before because that is a good segue, and it's the overhead is death. Um, there was there's a story in the book about um, a young lady that has like a dad who's an architect, and you know he ended up leaving his architectural firm and building his own, and you know doing freelance work, and he would work out of the garage, and on his desk was a was a post-it note that said overhead is death, and man, that's so huge, right? Like so many people love to go get like look at the tech community. Right before they get do anything, they go buy the most lavish office, and they get all the, the you know, ping pong tables and foosball tables and cafeteria and like all the crazy things. And it's like, how does this? How, like, why do we need over, all this overhead? It's so unnecessary. 
And if you want to be a company one, and you want to really do things big, work with as little overhead as possible. Allow yourself an opportunity to, uh, to maximize your profit. The revenue isn't as important. You have to feed yourself, obviously, but maximize your profit. Maximize your opportunity to put money in your pocket and have money to be able to go do things that matter in your business. Don't focus on you know, the, the best MacBook or don't focus on you know, the, the best food available for you and your, your employee. Like, focus on what matters in your business. Double down on what matters, right? Like, it's just, it's such a massive mistake that so many people make, and, and it's because of the tech startup culture that we have now of, like, you know, if you're not in a massive office, you don't have 100 employees, you don't have, you know, all these different things, you don't have the, this beautiful mural on the wall in the common area in your office, and you're not doing it right. It's like nonsense. You don't need any of this garbage. Focus on what you do best. Do it right. Nobody cares. Nobody cares that you have a mural in your office. Nobody cares that you have foosball tables. Yeah, will your employees be a little bit happier? Sure. But at the end of the day, like, is it really going to put money in everyone's pocket? Not really. Is it really going to be able to allow you to take your vision to the next level? Not really. Hey, listen, you get to a point where you have a whole lot of money in VC funding or you have, you know, hundreds of millions in revenue and you guys are pushing really big numbers. Fine, go get the mural, go get the foosball table, hook it up, whatever. But in the beginning, come on, give me a break. Yeah, and I want to say that is probably one of the hardest things. Uh, I almost got into business with a guy who, before we even had anything, uh, was trying to take me around and show me different offices and what it would be like. And the lady's like, oh, it would be X amount of dollars a month. And if you want to expand, we have a program where you, you can expand you into a larger thing. And I was like, bro, you're wasting my time. Like, we, we don't have any money for this. Like, there's no reason to do this. And thankfully, I didn't go to business with that guy because that would have been disastrous. But I will say that more knows after being in business for a while, our group, I started to get itchy for uh, an actual office and not in the sense of like a big overhead office, but you know, we were all phenomenal working at each other's houses, working long nights. We did zoom calls, everything um, to get things done. We got more and more efficient as time went on, but I thought it would be nice to maybe get one of those, um, go to not go to meetings. What are the, the, Regis, we work, we work. Regis, we work. we work, things like that. I was like, you know, it'd be cool maybe once or twice a week to have an office building or a, like like a little room almost. Like feels like out of your your college uh, uh, library, you know, one of the little study rooms. Something where you could get the whole team together um, and feel like you had like stuff set up. Um, because normally everything's on the whiteboard. We're pulling the whiteboard out, doing this and that. It isn't needed, as Moore said. But I can tell you from experience that you will get the itch and you will get the itch very strongly as your company starts to grow because it almost feels difficult when you get to a certain level and you don't have a physical, we were all tech, when you don't have a physical entity to tie to your company. It wasn't necessary, but I would say mentally you will get that itch to try to find uh, a thing, uh, an office space, uh, different things like that. But yeah, you can definitely do without it. But it really depends on you and your situation. If you don't have a good place to meet, like I said, libraries are phenomenal. Um, we used to meet outside. We'd go to Moore's backyard, you know, and just bring out the big whiteboard with all of us outside. So you can really get creative to where you're working. You don't need to be defined by, like, like Moore said, a, a large, you know, open space, bunch of employees with the mural, which, let's be real, we all want. But... It is not necessary. So I thought that was a great point, but I just wanted to bring up that you will get that itch and just try to stay strong. 
Oh, yeah, we totally had that itch. At a certain point, we were all trying to move in together so we could have a common area in the living room and keep the whiteboard up 24-7. So I'm with you. Like, I totally had it as well. But, you know, it's, it's, it's important to focus on what's important. Um, and with that being said, I have one last point that I want to make before we get into final thoughts, which is re relationship over revenue, right? As a company of one, you can't compete with the big conglomerates when it comes to revenue. What you can compete with is a, a sense of personality, um, an ability to connect with your customer at a higher level, an ability to create a long-lasting, long long-term, you know, really intimate relationship with the people that you're working with. And I think it's so important, especially up front, like if you have aspirations to build a $200 million company, a billion-dollar company, go get it. I'm all for it. But at the same time, you also got to start with the basics. And the basics is building relationships with people that want your services or want your product. And you can, and you got to build the relationship before you worry about the revenue. Um, and it's, it's, it's counterintuitive. You know, you want to have obviously the profit moving in. You want to have lower inner overhead so you can maximize that profit. But you also don't want to sell out. You don't want to just go, go and create relationships that are um, fickle, that will fall apart at the first sign of... Uh, of any sort of pushback, you don't want that. You want to create relationships that are long-lasting, that are going to survive the times. Because listen, being an entrepreneur is a tough gig. Running your own business is a tough gig. I don't care how many people like um, Mr. Jarvis here tells you that it's, 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 you, you're, everyone's capable of it, this and that, blah, blah, blah. Everyone's not capable of creating this. Only the resilient ones are. Only the ones that have the structure and the ability to see the vision are. Right? And I don't think he actually says that. I think that he probably doubled down on that as well. At the same time, in order to truly make a difference and create a, a space in the market for you to thrive, you got to create those relationships. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was trying to think of, of another thing as well. But, yeah, it is... I mean, the time suck is just insane. People, I don't think people understand how much time goes. Like, we were just used to working our day jobs, coming home, maybe eating dinner, getting like 30 minutes to an hour of like relaxation, and then getting on the computer at like 9 o'clock and working till like 2 o'clock, and then repeating. I mean, that's what we did. I mean, I had to change around my, you know, actual day job to be less hours, less days, more did the same thing. We all had to, you know, take these, I mean, we were literally paycheck to paycheck for, you know, the betterment of, of two years. You know, we left high-paying jobs to to kind of go on this journey. So you have to really be able to accept, you know, that, that you're not going to be making much money for a long time, but you learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about what you're capable of, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are. And then for us, like I said, we, when we closed down our, our, our company, we went on this journey of like, we knew that we failed, but we didn't fail from lack of effort. A lot of what we failed on would have been lack of knowledge. Um, and then we went on this journey and we're now on episode 63 of just trying to learn as much as we can because while currently we are not in our own startups or building a new company, we are always thinking of that. You know, like I said, for me, the skills I learned from Pedal, from teaching myself programma programmatic marketing um, have got me a job at Snapchat and it's, it's a phenomenal company. So things that you have to be able to sacrifice in the short term to win long term, this book really talks about setting those short-term goals and not it's not bad to have a big dream and a big wish but it is important to try to put it in perspective for where you are at the moment you know while your company may turn into the next big thing it's important to start small 
and more you touched upon you know kind of relationship building things like that i think when i was thinking amazon amazon obviously right now is one of the largest companies in the world but the thing they do better than anybody is customer service which is amazing amazing at a company of that scale because whether or not someone buys your product yeah if they buy it there's a good chance that they're going to tell people about it but if they get a good response when something goes wrong it's quick it's immediate and it's positive the chance of them telling somebody about it is so much greater. You know, like Amazon, even right now, will tell you, and this still happens to me, and I always tell people around me that it's the best thing, is they will tell you your package is coming on Friday, and then all of a sudden it comes Thursday. And it's like the biggest victory in the world. You know what I mean? They're able to keep their clients happy. If something goes wrong, they will refund you right away, no questions asked. You need to return it, no questions asked. You know, so when you're a startup in the beginning, if someone has an issue... Don't argue with them, understand it, try to learn from it, and be there to help correct it. Because that person, if they get a strong response and a positive response back when something goes wrong, are so much more likely to stay with you. Because not only are you helping them with a problem, but you are building that relationship with them that's going to be important for the next you know, months or years to come. So, you know, like we said in this book, there was a lot to talk about. If you are someone out there who is starting their own company, is thinking about starting their own company, there is so many different things that you can take from this book, um, even for us who have had our own startup. I mean, I can look back and say that, yeah, this is 100% right, or wow, I should have thought of it this way. You know, it's a lot of the things that if someone was to tell me to sit down and write a book about what I learned in my first startup and what could have done better, I think it would come out rather similar to this. So... This gives you kind of a real world um, kind of feedback on what to do and what not to do. And it'll save you money. I always told more. We lost a lot of money in what I called beginner costs. We did things wrong because we didn't know how to do it, you know, and then we figured out the right way and we were able to learn from that. We weren't crying because we just lost a few thousand dollars doing it the wrong way, but we felt good knowing that we won't make that mistake again because while that was you know, our baby, our, our first startup, it will not be our last. So take the knowledge that you get from your first company. If it doesn't work out, don't be hard on yourself. Just look at what you did wrong, take a step back, and look where you can be better. Because once you kind of get into this, you know, world, and your brain starts always thinking of new ideas, like when I see new products, my first thought is like, wow, they're doing this for marketing. I wonder what they're doing here, what their margins could be, where are they getting products from? Like, these are things just walking on the street that I'm looking at that my brain will just go wild that 9 out of 10 people walking around me may not have the same thoughts. So your brain will start to switch in the way that you start to look at things because you've been so kind of in the trenches. But it is important to note that you can do it alone, um, but this book does let you know that even though it's called a company of one, it is important to bring people around you that are similar, that are like-minded, that you can grow with and build off of. And yeah, I don't know. We'll hop into final thoughts in a second, but I, I really liked it. What do you think, Moore? Yeah, I think you really nailed it on the head, man. It's a great book to read if you want to be an entrepreneur, if you want to take it to take your life to the next level, if you're already an entrepreneur and you want to do it um, in a way that's going to you know, maximize your profits and allow you to have the work-life balance and all the good things, totally worth the read. Seven and a half hours or so, totally, totally worth it. I like this one a lot. What about you, Ross? Any final thoughts for us? I mean, that's it. I thought it was really good. Uh, I just want to give a shout out. Uh, Moore found this book. So shout out to him <laughs> for finding a, a good book. Because like I said, this honestly made me feel the, the types of books that we found in the beginning. You know, season two of the 52 at this point, 
We've really diversified our books, which has been phenomenal, but it is nice to get into a startup book. You know, it's been a while since we've actually had a startup book. We've had a lot of Agreed. sales books, business books, pitching books, personal development, whatever you want to call them. But this one was purely out of the, you know, entrepreneur uh, playbook. So really happy with it. And um, I highly recommend it. I think this was one of the, I would say, top 10 books easily. I don't want to go through the list of what was what, but this one, I, I thought it was really good. Like I said, I killed this one in record time, I think. This was very you did. fast. You made it through fast. You made it through very really fast. fast. I was watching your Audible. It was quick. Yeah. Uh, very so, guys, quick. With, with that being said, thank you so much for joining us for episode 63. Um, this week was a blast. Definitely worth the read. Give it a read if you'd like. Uh, Mr. Jarvis, I truly appreciate you. Uh, wonderful book, lots and lots of knowledge. Uh, I definitely, we will make, make our way back to your books. I know that there's a few others, and I'm sure that we'll come back and read a couple more. So guys, again, thank you so much for joining us for episode 63. My name is Moore Milo. I'm Ross Sanarelli. This is the 52 Podcast, 52 books, 52 weeks, making every single week count. Have an incredible week, and we'll see you next week. Take care.